Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that blow your mind, because that's what's going to happen today. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy, should be New Year, probably by the time you listen to this. It's odd. I'm still recording this in 2020. Let's just all remember that 2020 was a doozy. This said, not a bad way to kick off the year As we talk about everything you probably think and know about the brain is to some extent wrong. And look, I have not been complicit in this journey, right? As we have been doing this for over a decade, there's been things you've heard that don't jive with what you're going to hear today. I would like to say that I tend to lean towards believing our guest this week. If you hear a little bit about her bio, you'll understand why. So we are talking to Lisa Feldman Barrett, she's among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world, specifically for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard and Mass General Hospital. She's also chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Harvard. She's published over 240 peer-reviewed science papers. She's written books. I mean, she's got a TED Talk with millions and millions of downloads. Like, she received a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2019. It's kind of incredible. All this to say, I think she knows her stuff. And the brain is not what it seems. One thing I'd like to highlight as we get into the new year, make sure you listen to the end because this idea that so much of how we feel and who we are is based on those around us. You know, I swear, I have been saying this for years, that one day we will be able to see the energy transfer amongst humans. And this is the closest I've ever got to to understanding it. As Lisa talks about how impacted we are by those around us. Her book, which we're talking about today, is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's an awesome read. It's actually fairly short. I want to say 140 pages. I actually read almost this entire book in a day. I was hooked. I like it It, when it's simple yet complicated. And what I mean is this is not, you know, a topical understanding. It's very detailed, but it's, there's not a lot of fluff, right? I, I, I can't stand it 
a lot of the books these days where they'll make it 400 pages just to be 400 pages. So a lot of respect here. So the lesson at the end as you just get to it is be the person you would like to be around. You know, that's the impact we have on each other. I think it's a message we can all use. Your brain will thank you. Also, it's the new year. There's there's really a couple things I'm going to ask of you. And I know this is where people just eye roll, hit fast forward. If you could do any of these, it's pretty cool. Uh, one, we haven't done a lot of plugging Patreon, but your support means the world. And I mean like each person, right? So we have 30 patrons supporting us right now out of tens of thousands that listen. So when you think about that ratio, and I get it, right? That means each 30 of those people, like they genuinely mean a lot to me and this hobby that we've done for over a decade. So, you know, for two, five bucks a month, you also get some perks, ad-free episodes. So you don't have to listen to the ads. It gets sent to your phone, same way all episodes do. You can ask our guests questions. I'm sure there's things you wish I would have asked about the brain. You could have asked them. And if we get to a hundred patrons, we're going to start creating some swag. So like, I really want a smart people podcast t-shirt. Maybe we'll reach out to you and figure out what should we have on them. So, you know, it's, it's not expensive. The other thing is tell us, just reach out. Like a couple of reviews, we've gotten comments. If you want to do that, that's great. But I'm less concerned about the review and more like, how do you feel about the show? Right? Uh, Because we want to do some big things and it's just, it's tough. So your motivation helps. We're at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Here's our interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett as we talk about her new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Enjoy. Lisa, first, again, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, As I was telling you, our listeners know, the brain is a subject that has been covered quite often on the show, probably one of the top, but it's always one of the favorites. And in fact, one of my favorite episodes of all time is about the brain. And I'm a little sad to say, I think some of the things I learned in your book are contrary to the guest I'm referring to. So we were talking about this before I hit record. You mentioned you think the industry is in a little bit of a paradigm shift, which might be causing some of the the differences in opinion or information. Could you tell us more what that paradigm shift is and how you're seeing it in the field? Sure, sure. So, I mean, the first thing to know is that the set the context for what I'm going to say is that scientists, part of doing science is um, dealing with uncertainty and part of doing science is being wrong. And being wrong is not um, a problem in science. It's actually part of the process. In fact, there's a really terrific series of books by Stuart Firestein. There are a really terrific series of books by Stuart Firestein, who's a biologist at Columbia University. One's called Ignorance, and the other's called Failure. And he's really talking about the opportunities to learn um, and discover new things when you find that your hypothesis about how something works, like the brain, um, is wrong. I think if I were going to describe the views of the brain, what I would say is that that for a very long time, the assumption has been that your brain works like uh, a collection of mental organs, that you've got one part of the brain for thinking and another part of the brain for feeling and another part of the brain for perception and another part of the brain for action and decision-making. And that information comes into the brain um, and sensory information and you perceive it, you evaluate it, and then your brain plans an action and then executes that action. Um, And um, so it's a little bit like information is being passed from one part of the brain to the other, each one with its own kind of function, kind of like a baton in a relay race. And that view of the brain has been with us really for the the last century, for sure. It's not the only view of the brain that's been around, but I would say it's really the dominant view. And it really matches our deeply held beliefs, lay beliefs about 
who we are and how our mind works. And in maybe in the 1990s, Antonio Damasio brought the idea to the public that the brain isn't just tracking what's going on in the world, it's also tracking what's going on inside your own body. And that the state of your body, or at least what your brain believes to be the state of your body, is really, really important to the things that you think and the things that you do. And this was a real game changer. I wouldn't say that it was a paradigm shift, but I think it was a real game changer. Um, and, um, and I think Damasio was even more right than he knew um, because mm. it turns out that the brain's main job really isn't thinking. Its most important job is not thinking or seeing or feeling. It's actually regulating the systems of your body and regulating action. So, and so what I mean by that is controlling your heart and your lungs and your immune system and your metabolism so that you can act and that you can learn in the world. And everything else it does is in the service of that. And you and I don't experience our every thought or every feeling of happiness or awe or anger or every, the every hug that we give or every insult we bear. We don't experience as all of these things as in the service of regulating the body but that actually is how the brain is structured. That's how the brain evolved. That's what the anatomy looks like. And we aren't really reacting to things in the world. It turns out that our brain is really, our brains really run an internal model of our bodies in the world, meaning your brain is, has a storehouse of past experience that it can use in, in it can reinstate or re-implement bits and pieces in order to make predictions about what to do next and what you will see and hear and feel next. And yeah. that is a, that's really the big, um, the big paradigm shift from this reactive brain to this predictive brain. Okay. And I, I definitely want to get into that because let's go back to the part you were talking about where the brain is not these different pieces. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I, like I said, I've interviewed people, I worked for a long time for a consulting company that talked kind of about the brain in, in, in the context of productivity and things like that. They had neuroscientists they talked to. And you know, that idea that the brain, you've got the lizard brain, the reptilian brain, the limbic system, the, you know, prefrontal cortex or the, you know, whatever all the cortexes are, all that stuff. And immediately in your book, it's like, nope, not true. And to, to a lot of people, even the average hobbyist, I think, that's like, wait a second, how, how can, how can this be right? Like, how can this even be a thing? And you go into it and you talk about, and this is where I want to get clarity. You talk about, and what I gathered is the, every brain, at least mammalian brain, I think mm -hmm. has the same structure. You call it a, um, I think like a, a, a development, uh, or a manufacturing process or something manufacturing plan. Can you help us understand the impact of, of that, that the way the brain is manufactured is similar amongst all types of species and how that goes against this belief that there's different parts and we've kind of evolved out of it? Yeah, sure. So let's back up a little though before, let's back up a bit and talk about how people came to the idea that we have a lizard brain, which is wrapped in a limbic system, which is controlled by uh, the neocortex. So where, where did that even come from? And then we'll compare it to how we learned that that wasn't true. Because I think it's a really neat story. Um, and um, if you just look at the brain of a lizard, just look at it, eyeball it, and you look at the brain of a, a rodent, say, like a mammal, but a you know, small mammal, and then you look at a primate brain or a human, you know, a human brain or a monkey brain, whatever, any kind of primate, like ape, say, they look different to the naked eye. In fact, if you look at a bird brain, it doesn't have a cortex. If you look at a, a lizard brain, it looks like it doesn't have a cortex or maybe it has like a super small one in certain cases. If you look at a, a, a rat brain, it looks like it has a pretty smooth cerebral cortex, very small. Um and it looks pretty, looks like there are only the ancient parts of the cerebral cortex, um, which um, 
are basically uh, surrounding the, um, the, the lizard brain. So it looks like the brain, what is happening across evolution is the brain's evolving new parts. And the lizard brain, you know, is supposed to house the, in, the, the circuits for instincts, um, for fleeing and fighting and freezing and mating. It's what scientists in their, you know, immense um, humor call the four Fs. And, <laughs> and that mammals evolved this ancient part of the cerebral cortex called the limbic system, which, which limbic meaning border, it borders the lizard brain and it contains the circuits for emotion. And then on top of that evolved a new cortex, the neocortex for, um, for rationality and the human, you know, uh, brain is supposed to have the biggest neocortex of all, which it, it doesn't by the way, but, um, but it's, but that's the, that's the story. And if you look at the brains by eye, that is kind of how it looks, actually. Um, and it fits store. It fits a nice story, a morality tale that comes from Plato. Um, so go back a couple of thousand years, and there's a story from Plato who's talking about the the human psyche, and uh, that you know you can describe a human as two chariot human behavior can be described as two chariot two um two horses human behavior can be described as two horses with a charioteer one horse are are human instincts one horse are human emotions or passions and uh, then there's the charioteer who controls the the two which are are like your inner beast and that's the narrative that has been used really since uh, the 1940s, I would say it was. It, it started to emerge a little earlier than that, but it was pretty solidified in the 1950s. And in the 1970s, um, Carl Sagan wrote a book called *The Dragons of Eden*, where he popularized this view of the brain. And it makes so much sense, and it matches our our intuitions, right? That our that that our mind is really a battleground between emotion and instincts on one hand and rationality on the other. And when rationality reigns, you know, we act well and we're happy. And when uh, our inner beast gets the best of us, um, we're either immoral or we're mentally ill. You know, if rationality can't control your inner beast, if it can't control your inner beast, you're sick. And if it won't, then you're immoral. And that's the narrative. The thing that's really cool to me is that in starting in the 1960s, scientists, ev evolutionary biologists, people who were interested in genetics, in, in the molecular structure of genes, started to peer deep inside the, um, make the, inside the structure of individual neurons. And what they discovered is that many, many, many of the cells share common genes. And through a series of very interesting studies and analyses, what they showed is that many of the genes that we share with vertebrates, other vertebrates like fish and um, reptiles and birds, and certainly all of the neurons that we share with mammals have a common evolutionary history. Now, when I say it that way, because not all the comparisons have been done properly for primates versus fish, and you know, it may turn out that it's all vertebrates. But um, by the 1970s, people who study embryology and who study evolutionary biology knew that this, uh, you know, three-layered version of the brain, the triune brain. Um, or what I sometimes refer to as the birthday cake brain, you know, that you've got these, you've got like two layers that, you know, and then, a, you know, you, the cerebral cortex is like icing on the already baked cake, right? Um, that people, you know, in these um, small scientific communities knew that that, that view was not correct. Um, but the the whole story wasn't really clear. And I don't think the whole story is clear now. But then fast forward, you know, a couple of decades, and we have a really brilliant neuroscientist named Barbara Finley, 
And what she did was study the developmental stages of brains from their beginning when in an embryo start an embryo starts producing um, invertebrates. And in this case, I should just restrict myself to mammals because she really has only studied ma mammalian brains. Um, but from the moment that neurons begin to be produced from an embryo, so embryos start producing uh, neurons, and from that beginning stage of brain development all the way to um, um, a you know uh, adult sort of finished brain in a sense, although adult brains continue to, to they have their plastic, they have plasticity, they continue to change and so on. But if you look at the stages of brain development, and there are 271 stages of brain development, what she's shown is that the stages are all pretty much identical in all of the mammalian species that have ever been studied. So we all, all, you know, us and rats and dogs and cats and every mammal have the same brain plan. That is the developmental stages are occurring when, when certain neurons are born, when they migrate to the position that they should be in, when certain wiring takes place. Like this is all the stages are happening in exactly the same order. What differs is how long the stages run for. The longer a stage runs for, the more neurons you have or the more developed the, the wiring is, or, you know, it's basically longer is bigger and more. And so out of exactly the same brain plan with exactly the same types of neurons, you can produce brains that look very different to the naked eye. And now a quick word from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Georgetown McDonough MBA. At Smart People Podcast, you know we're all about education. Whether that's learning from podcasts, from reading, or heading back to school, we're all about learning and growing. At the Georgetown McDonough School of Business, the incoming MBA classes represents 42 different countries, and 67% of students have lived, worked, or studied abroad. This multiculturalism is just one of the ways Georgetown exposes you to diverse perspectives and prepares you to excel on the global stage. The Recruiter Insights Report from Bloomberg Businessweek rated Georgetown MBAs as the world's most innovative and creative graduates and the world's best trained graduates. When you choose a Georgetown MBA, you can feel confident you're getting a good return on your investment. Last year's graduating class once again secured impressive starting salaries with offers from top employers. So listen up. If you've ever been thinking about going back for your MBA, Explore the full-time and flex MBA programs and discover how Georgetown McDonough can help you launch the career you want at choosegeorgetown.com slash MBA. Again, that's choosegeorgetown.com slash MBA. And now back to the episode. What is the reasoning for how they end up? So, you know, essentially what I'm hearing is We'll take a, I don't know, a, a rat and us, right? Um, same process, right? Same ability. It's just the timing of which each part of the brain, and I know I'm getting it all wrong, but to some extent, each part of the brain keeps growing or stops growing or keeps attracting neurons or whatever. Um, is it because each animal over time has figured out exactly the type of brain it needs to live its quote unquote best life? Or is there some other rationale that we figured out behind why they start and stop and, and allow a lot more time to different functions or areas? Well, let me say that the question of why is very different from the question of how. How it happens, that is what's being tuned, what's changing is a very different question from why is this change happening? You know, a simple answer to why is that um, because natural select, because of natural selection, because animals who don't have particular configurations die and they don't reproduce. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, there's a set of genes that all vertebrates have. They're called Hox genes. And even some invertebrates have these genes too like flies, for example. And these are very, very, very ancient genes. They're, 
you know, more than 500 million years old, and we all have them. And he and mammals have and vertebrates, I should say, have them in exactly. We have exactly the same genes that um, work in exactly the same way. Um, and these are just duplicates of, you know, so I don't remember how many copies of, of these genes um, flies have, but over the course of vertebrate evolution, there've been two duplications of the genes so that we have four sets of these genes. It was a remarkable degree of preservation of, of this genetic structure. And you can ask why, well, one way to answer the question of why, why do, why do we all share this is that every other animal who had something different died without reproducing sufficiently. Right. So what we would say is that this, what these, these um, Hox genes are kind of like a genetic GPS system. They tell, they organize the, um, the segmentation of our bodies from head to, to toe and all animals, certainly all vertebrates, I should say, have the same kind of body segmentation and some uh, invertebrates do as well. So your head is at the top and, you know, your, you know, various orifices are in relation to one another, what they are. And, you know, you see so you have a, a head and you have a body and you have legs and arms. And in general, this kind of organization means that something's telling nerves like cells where to migrate in order to get this segmentation out. And it applies to pretty much, you know, every vertebrate. And um, I mean, so you might not have legs, but you have, you know, fins or you might not have arms, but you have wings. So the point being right. that everything is kind of in this general organization, but the fact that the, that these genes have been preserved over millions and hundreds of millions of years means they are under a very strong selection pressure. It means that any other organisms that didn't have this organization died without reproducing. Hmm. And what's really, I mean, because, you know, what's really cool is that if you just take an organism, like take, take a species and let it reproduce, you're going to get genetic drift. And I mean, this is a real problem for beer makers, for example, right? Because you're, you're using yeast and you don't, you want the taste to be the same of your beer to be the same from batch to batch to batch, but yeast will, they will have mutations and they'll change over time. And then the taste of the beer will change over time. So you have to find a way to stabilize the genetic makeup of your yeast so that there isn't this kind of change over time. So mm -hmm. change is the normal condition. And um, so when you don't see that change and you see something preserved for this super long time, it's really surprising. It means there's a really serious selection pressure. Um, and so um, what this means for us is that the, the fact that we have these 271 developmental stages and the fact that they occur in the same order um, means that there's something really, really, really useful about this order for producing brains that live on this planet um, in the conditions that we live in. And I so see. natural selection is is really responsible. But you could still ask, but why, what is it about this ordering that is advantageous? And that Certainly people will give you stories about that, but that's a, that's not really a question that can be easily answered with science. It's called teleology. And mm. we, you know, there, there's a big debate about whether we should even be asking such questions because the stories we come up with are, are more like natural history than they are like scientific evidence per se. It's like a historical, sure. yeah, historical. No, I mean, and, and that makes sense. I think where my confusion comes in is this and you talk about this in your book, but the rationale of there's the lizard brain, then the limbic system, and then the neocortex and all that, it just allows us to linearly evolve ourselves, essentially, and to put us at the top of the hierarchy. And and that's what it feels like we are from a from a food chain perspective, we absolutely are. From an intelligence perspective, I would imagine we are. It was a question I had for you. So I guess the question then becomes, I've always thought of humans as the reason we are different. And I mean, of course, this is like a very human view, but 
is because we can think about thinking, right? We can solve these tough problems. We are at the top of the food chain, not because we're the biggest, strongest, fastest, et cetera, but because we're the smartest. And I just don't understand then if every brain technically has the same process, it's just the timing, I think. I didn't say that every brain has the same process. I said every brain, I said the brains of mammals mm -hmm. develop in the same order and we have the same types of neurons, but brains as they get bigger, reorganize themselves. And the, so for example, you can say that all brains, you know, uh, all brains form categories, all brains um, can look at something and, and make a judgment of how this thing is similar or different to other things that you that the, that the brain has encountered in the past. All brains can do that. In fact, single cell organisms can do that in a particular way. Um, but the way the human brain does it has something in common with other how anim, how other mammalian brains do it. But we do it in a way that allows us to, for example, do abstract categorization, make abstract categories in ways that other animals really can't match. And so the, the, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that the processes, for, so first of all, I didn't say anything about the processes per se when I was talking about that developmental plan. I was talking about the, the same like raw ingredients. I see, and okay. Same raw ingredients and the same recipe. But, you know, if you adjust the timing of the recipe, you can get out very, very, very different products. Ah, I like that analogy or, or metaphor, if you will. I do. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So, so for example, you know, let me just say like, you know, um, let's say you encounter something you've never seen before. You've never encountered, you've never encountered this thing before, anything like it. Your brain is going to attempt to use what it, what it knows in order to make sense of this. So let's imagine that you saw a pair uh, like a stairway that you've never encountered before you and you but you and you have to get up that stairway and your brain's gonna use experiences from the past in order to make a plan a prediction about how to deal with this thing that's sitting right in front of you that you need to deal with now if you are um a monkey maybe you'll know that um maybe your brain will realize that um climbing uh, these um, stairs is like climbing, um, you know, a tree, right? You'll be able, you're, the monkey will be able to use past experience of climbing a tree in order to figure out how to climb these stairs. And maybe uh, if you're a chimp, you might be able to realize that the way that you climb the stairs or the way that uh, like a cat climbs the stairs and the way that a snake climbs the stairs and a way that a monkey climbs the stairs, even though the movements are the same, um, uh, the, I mean, sorry, even though the movements are different, the act of climbing is the same, or maybe the monkey, or maybe the chimp might know, maybe the chimp might know climbing a tree and climbing stairs are similar. So the chimp would be able to abstract a little bit away from the immediate, um, physical conditions um, and understand that climbing a tree and climbing stairs are both climbing something. But only a human, as far as we know, can understand that climbing a tree, climbing stairs, climbing a ladder and climbing a social ladder are have something in common. That is, we can abstract away, we can find similarities in things that look different, sound different, that we would act on differently motorically, but we can see similarities in their, in their function. We can right. do this not because we have a different brain than a chimp or a monkey. We just have, you know, our brains are performing very similar computations, but we have more capacity to perform those computations, which let, because we have bigger cerebral cortex than those animals. And, and we also have some souped up metabolics going on in certain parts of our brain that let us do this level of abstraction that other animals can't do. And actually that kind of answered a question I had, which was because again, this is all just out of confusion. You know, I'm trying to process it, but 
So is it true that different parts of the brain, though, do still focus on different areas? So it depends on what you, when you ask the question, do different parts of the brain do different things? Mm -hmm. It depends on what things you mean. Mm. So are you talking about, are you, are your descriptions biological or are they psychological? Ah, Ah. So if you ask, is one part of the brain for thinking and another part of the brain for feeling, the answer is no. If you ask, is one part of the brain for seeing and another part of the brain for hearing, the answer is sort of. <laughs> because while it is true that if you're, you know, there are certain parts of the brain that you that you can't see without, but... These aren't the only parts of the brain that are important for seeing. Sure. So, you know, the parts of the brain that are supposed to be, that we identify as auditory cortex for hearing actually carry information about vision and they carry information about touch. Those neurons are coding for other modalities. So they're like association regions, in, right? So, so the auditory cortex and somatosensory cortex, the parts that are we identify as being for 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 hearing and for touch are serving as association regions for vision okay so i can mm. show you for example um and 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 vice versa so i can show you for example a visual image there's a gif that i use that it's really cool um where you know it's a bunch of electrical towers jumping rope and you know when have you ever seen an electrical tower jumping rope in your real life the answer is never Mm -hmm. um, but yet you can look at it and just in an instant understand what it is because your brain can use bits and pieces of your past experience and combine them in a novel way to make this abstraction so that you understand what you're looking at. The really interesting thing is that you're just looking at something, but you can hear the towers hitting the ground mm. and you can also feel the thud of the tower as it hits the ground in your chest, even though you're just looking at something. Right. It's a is that, is that, would you consider that predictive? Is that yeah, one of the things yes, you mean exactly. when you talk about yes, yes. being predictive? Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So my point is that when it comes to psychological things, it's very, it's not the case that every neuron can do everything, but every neuron contributes to more than one psychological phenomenon. But when you're talking at the level of biology, that is, you know, neurons have inputs from other neurons and they send their um, information, you know, to specific neurons. So not every neuron is connected to every other neuron. Every neuron receives inputs from, you know, a couple of thousand neurons and it sends its own information to a couple of thousand neurons. And so you can certainly talk about the function of neurons in terms of the information they receive and the information that they send in a biological way, in a computational way, even um, without making, without mapping that, you know, in a simple-minded way to thinking and feeling and seeing and acting and so on. Right. No, that makes sense. What I want to go back to uh, because I think this is another critical component, and you you mentioned it earlier, but we didn't spend time on it. The purpose of the brain, right? And as you mentioned, I think a lot of people, myself included, would probably say, well, it's to think, solve, which, okay, if you go to why, why is that the purpose? Well, because that's our defense mechanism. That's our way of staying alive. That's our way of moving through the world. But you talk about it in a, a different form or a different way, which is body budgeting. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that's essentially at the core of what the brain does? Sure. So, you know, we value thinking, we value rationality as something that we do very well, um, that other animals might not do as well. And so it's natural for us to believe that this is what the, what our brains must be for. <laughs> um, but, um, and you know, you say, well, you couldn't really survive if you couldn't, if you weren't rational, but that's actually, you couldn't really survive if your brain stopped talking to your body. If your yeah, brain actually you would die a lot faster. You would die right. a lot yeah. faster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, in your you're in your body, you have a couple of systems that will work on their own in a certain way, right? So your heart will continue if you gave enough 
um, oxygen and glucose and salt and other nutrients, if you could get it into the heart, the heart would continue to beat for some period of time um, without a brain. And the same thing is true for your gut. Your gut has its own internal oscillator. If you separated a gut from a brain, it would still, you know, if it had sufficient oxygen and nutrients and so on, it would still function for some period of time. But that's not true of most of your organs. And um, if you look at the evolution of brains, like when did brains even arrive on this planet? And um, what was the, you know, what was happening? What else was developing around the time that brains were were evolving? If you if you look at that evidence, and then you also look at the evidence of the structure of the brain, that is how the neurons are arranged and where they project and so on, what you can see is that the brain's most important job is to regulate the systems of your body, your, your cardiovascular system, your respiratory system, your, um, you know, waste uh, removal system, your rest, your, um, your immune system, your metabolism, and so on. And there's a name for your brain's regulation of the body. Your brain is regulating the body predictively. It's trying to anticipate the needs of the body and meet those needs before they arise. So for example, if your brain is going to stand you up, it's going to raise your blood pressure as you stand so that oxygen can make it to your brain so that Whoa. you don't faint. If your brain, if, if, if your brain waited to raise your blood pressure till after you stood, you might faint and that would be really metabolically costly. In general, it's more metabolically efficient to predict what the body needs and correct than it is to just react. And now a quick word from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by NetSuite. If you're a business owner, you don't need to tell us that running a business is tough, but you might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place, instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com smart. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com smart. One more time, that's netsuite.com smart. And now back to the episode. Wait, can I can I interject on that? Because that's that's actually a great example and fascinating. And my question is, how much of that knowledge is based on each individual's experience, and how much of it is based on, you know, evolutionary experience? Oh, a lot of it. Some of it, I would say, some of it for basic basic biological functions is is built in evolutionary okay. built in, okay. um, and some of it is learned. And but even the stuff that's built in is not, you know, the, so even the stuff that's built in that we might call a reflex is still sensitive to context. It's not like you just flip a switch and the actions occur. That's, that's not even true in, um, you know, in a zebra, in a larval zebra fish that's two, two uh, weeks old, or really? sorry, two hours old, I should say. Let me say that again. That's not even true in a larval zebra fish that's two hours old. Hmm. reflexes are very, very sensitive to context. That's an, an important, I guess, um, slight course correction to our understanding of what an instinct is, for example. Right, right. Um, but, but your brain is basically regulating your body and, it, and everything else it's doing, it's doing in the service of regulating your body. For example, if your brain predicts that information is not going to be useful in the future, then it's not going to bother to learn it. Because it, like, it's not a very good investment of your resources. <laughs> so your brain is always predicting. And the name that we give for this predictive regulation is allostasis. But I described it with a metaphor. 
um, of body budgeting that you can think about your brain. What your brain is doing is it's running a budget for your body and it's not budgeting money. It's budgeting, you know, glucose and salt and water and oxygen and all the things that are necessary to keep your body alive and well so that you can do the most important job from your brain's perspective or actually not really from your brain's perspective. I should, that was a mistake. Um, so that you can do the most important job that you have from evolution's perspective, which is to pass your genes on to the next generation. Um, so reproduce and make sure that those offspring or try to ensure that those offspring survive to reproductive age themselves. You know, that brings me to what I view as the, the biggest reason in my mind to know any of this. And I mean, partly it's just joy. It's fun to learn this stuff. But partly I always, when I get into the brain, I wonder what can I do with this information to make my life better? And I want to ask you that question in general, but I also want to ask, you know, can we strive to override these budgets in a way that we believe will improve our life as opposed to improve our evolutionary needs. You know, so we live to whatever, 80 years old now or something, well past the age, quote unquote, necessary to pass on our genes. And, and, and if our brains are kind of operating off an obsolete budget, you know, if you will, um, is it possible to take this information and say, okay, I feel tired, but that's probably just my brain trying to make sure I have enough energy in case this happens. That's not going to happen because it's not a million years ago. So override, change the experience, change the memory, and therefore change the habits or reactions in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, let me just say that, that um, the important thing is to make sure that your offspring survive to reproductive age so that they can reproduce. And so there are evolutionary, you know, stories, hypotheses about the importance of grandparenting, like grandmothering, mm -hmm. grandfathering, um, really mostly grandmothering. Um, and um, there is value to having people live a long time um, because we don't want to have to learn everything ourselves. We need to be able to learn from other people. And uh, that's one of our major adaptive advantages is that we teach each other things so we don't have to learn everything from scratch every single right. time. And what we're doing with our young, you know, our next generation, those little brains are born under construction so we can wire, uh, we can cultivate or curate an environment for them that wires our cultural practices and learning into those brains. And el it's not a mistake or an accident that elderly people are revered in certain countries and certain cultures um, because they're full of knowledge and they've made mistakes that hopefully we don't have to make and so on and so forth. So, but, but I think more to the point is, you know, the reason for writing this book, in addition to trying to give people a break from, um, you know, to, to be able to read something quick and, and have some fun with it and maybe entertain people at dinner parties when we used to have dinner parties. Yeah. Right. And, um, <laughs> you know, and maybe feel a little bit smarter about things and just kind of marvel at the coolness of it all. Exactly. Part of it is that um, science and philosophy, you know, are tools for living. And if you understand how your brain works, then you don't necessarily have to override, but you certainly can change your behavior. Sometimes that might mean overriding. But, you know, when you try to, when you wake up in the morning and you have to drag your ass out of bed, mm -hmm and you're really feeling dreadful, you don't have to make an emotion out of it. You can just ask yourself, did I sleep enough? Am I hydrated sufficiently? Like you can go through the checklist of your body budget. And even in a case like, you know, the case like the last number of months in, with COVID, it's very, very, very easy to um, become depressed. What does that mean? That's a bankrupt body budget. Hmm. So, my point is that by actually first asking yourself, like, is literally something wrong in my life or am I that I really have to attend to or am I just, you know, running a deficit in my body budget? Do I need to sleep more? Do I need to drink more water? Do I need a hug 
from my loved one? Like, what do I, is there some way that I can um, adjust my, make some deposits because I'm really feeling, you know, sad, I'm really feeling, because I'm really feeling tired or because I'm really feeling crabby or because I just don't feel like I have the spoons to deal with life. And that's a very different set of actions than what you would do if you thought there was something emotionally wrong in your life. No, that's a good point. It actually bring, makes me think of when you talked about um, just how body budgeting relates to mental illness in general, which is a subject we've covered on here. You know, and and again, rather than kind of go through my understanding, how how do you think, I know we're making the leap from just, I feel bad in the morning, but how do you think the two relate? Oh, well, I talk about this very much in my first book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret mm -hmm. Life of the Brain. So I have a chapter actually on this topic. There's a lot to say here that, um, you know, we can't do justice to in the few minutes that we have left. Sure. But what I will say is that at its basis, depression and anxiety are metabolic illnesses. I don't mean that they're only metabolic illnesses, right? So it's just... The, the point is that in, when it comes to illness, illness isn't like a mechanistic system. Um, there are usually many small interacting causes that produce illness. Just like, you know, a virus is not the sufficient ill. It, a virus isn't sufficient for causing um, respiratory disease. It's necessary, but somewhere between 60 and 80% of people who are infected by, a, who are exposed to a virus don't develop symptoms. So they mm. don't get sick, which means that a virus isn't the only cause. It's it's one necessary cause in a in a recipe of of necessary causes. Another being the state of your immune system, uh, which is related to the state of your brain, hmm. which is related to your metabol your body budget. So my point is that when you are depressed, when you're depressed, it's like having a bankrupt body budget. What do you do? When you're financially, you know, your your actual financial budget is strained. What do you what do you do? Save. You save. You stop spending. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And so what does it mean for a brain to stop spending? It means you stop moving so much, your body, and you stop learning. And you stop exposing yourself to things that are novel or unpredictable or the things that are that you would have to learn because those are very expensive things to do from a brain's perspective. Okay. I got to tell you something real quick. Okay. So for as long as I can remember, I feel like I have less physical energy than I should, right? We can call it tired, but it is what it is. Now it goes in, in peaks and spurts, but I'll, I sleep a lot, like eight and a half, nine hours a day, et cetera. And I have always said and maybe it's just justification that the reason this is true is because when I'm awake, I am what I would call hyper vigilant. Like I'm always learning. I'm always seeking, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a book, whether it's watching a documentary, whether it's watching a Ted talk, what like constantly trying to expose myself to new information. Now, why? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just a thing, but you think there's any you think there is any, you know, coming from one of the smartest people I've ever talked to, you think there's any justification for that? Well, I appreciate the compliment, but um, I'm, I, I, yes, I do. I, I absolutely do. Wow. Yeah. You know what it brings me to? And I know we're coming up on the hour and this is a great tease for the book, but you have a section in the back that I think, and I say the back towards the end, that is like all that is human. I've long said we will come across someday the science behind human interaction. And I believe it's, let me see, chapter five. Um, and I forget the title offhand, but where you talk about how the brain, like our brains interact with each other. And, you know, I'd imagine that's a big part of it too. The energy transfer amongst those around us. Oh, yes, exactly. You've totally, you're totally right. So we, I love that. What's your like one big takeaway? Because I, I could talk to you for hours. I know we don't have it, but as it relates to that, and this will tease people to buy the book, like what's the big takeaway about how our brains work together and the impact it has on us? Yep. So we are social animals and we evolved not to regulate our own body budgets by ourselves. 
So we make, you know, figuratively speaking, we make deposits and withdrawals into each other's body budgets. The best thing for a human body budget is another human. Hmm. And the worst thing for a human body budget is another human. Ooh. Right. So why do humans live longer when they're in close supportive relationships? And why do humans die sooner um, if they're lonely and socially isolated? Why does it feel to you like you've lost a part of yourself when someone who you love dies? It's because you have. You mm. have lost a part of you, yourself. You've lost someone who helped to bear the burden of your body budget. And that person's gone. And that means you have to do it more on your own. And that's really not how we evolved as creatures. We regulate each other in really, really fascinating ways, some of which I talk about in, the, uh, in that lesson. And in lesson seven, I talk about how that co-regulation really allows us to build civilizations. It allows us, it gives us culture and it gives us many, many, many of the things that we take for granted every day in our lives um, in civilization, you know, is made up by us, by brains that are regulating one another for better or for worse. For better or for worse is right. And I guess it's, you know, pick, we all know this, but pick who you spend time with. And in this pandemic, it might not be that easy. Yeah. Pick who you spend time with, but also pick the, who do you want to be? Hmm. You want to be someone who makes deposits into other people's body budgets? Do you want to be the kind of person who helps other people become the best person they can be? Or do you want to be a drag on someone's body budget? The, the message here is that, you know, you are, you have the freedom to do and say almost anything, you know, within what's legal, you have the you have freedoms to 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 do and say almost anything you want, but you are not free from the consequences of what you say and do. You are more responsible for the well-being of other people than you might realize. Hmm. And even more than you might like. And once you're armed with that knowledge, you can kind of choose the person who you want to be. And also, you can also, it gives you more impetus, really, or more motivation to choose the people who you are around. Do you want to, you know, when my daughter was heading off to college, the one piece of advice I said, I gave her was choose to spend time with the people that make you the person you want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, choose to be with the people who help you be the person you want to be. Wow. And it's neuroscience. I mean, that's the thing. I, I'm calling it right here. I swear I've been saying it for years, but what we call charisma or likability or, or magnetism is, and you call this on your book, essentially, it's, it's real, it's tangible, it's, it, it's the brain energy. It's, I mean, that's what it is. Exactly. I love it. Lisa, I know you have to go. I want to say thank you so much. Incredible. By the way, I love the book. I love how you made it exactly how long it needed to be instead of people who take a book and try and make it 400 pages just so it seems more important. Like, thank you for that, by oh. the way. Um, <laughs> thank you. The book is seven and a half lessons about the brain. We will link to the book. We will link to your website. Is there anywhere else you, you'd like to draw people or send them to, to learn more about what you're doing? You have a ton of research anywhere you want to uh, let them know about right now. Actually, my website, lisafeldmanbarrett.com has a lot of resources for people, um, things I've written for the public. Um, most of my academic papers are on a different website uh, uh, for my lab called mm -hmm. affectivescience.com. Okay. Yeah. We will link to that. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, on your show. And I'm really, really delighted. It's a big deposit in my body budget that you, uh, that you enjoyed the book so much. Oh yeah. And, and I mean that by the way, I know you have to go, but like books these days, I hate how people do it. The first 20 pages are fantastic. The next 300 are horrible. It's one of the reasons why I've made it through years. So just really well done on your part Thanks. and great planning. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much.
All right. Have a okay. great holiday. Thank you. You too. Take care. All righty. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Lisa Feldman Barrett. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Lisa's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is available now wherever books are sold. And I'll make this quick, because you already know the drill. If you'd ever like to reach out to us, email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd ever like to support the show, the easiest way to do so is just leave us a rating or review wherever you downloaded the podcast. And if you want to support us monetarily, you might have heard Chris mention it in the intro, but you can support us on Patreon. We're so thankful for everybody that already supports us. We're hoping to get more patrons hoping to eventually create some swag and some other cool perks. So head over to patreon.com slash smart people podcast, where you can sign up really for any amount of money, but we have tiers at $2, $5, whatever they are over there, head over there, find out more information. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things, smart people podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right. I promise you this one will be short. Happy New Year. I hope your 2021 is fantastic. I know that 2020 did not leave a high bar for us. So fingers crossed, 2021 is a little bit better for folks. And make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you next episode.